Well, we are glad you're here today with us. And I invite you to turn all the way to 2 Samuel today. Um, Last week we were in 1 Samuel. In chapter 18, um, for those that were with us. And so let me, let me catch us all up. Um, I kind of have been telling others as I, as I planned and worked through this. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Ant-Man, there's a, seri- there's a series of storytelling in it where uh, he tells Lewis, okay, I need just the facts. Give me the facts. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. And he tells this long, arduous, hilarious story in a way that I wish I could do today. Uh, but as, as we, from 18 on through the rest of uh, 1 Samuel, what we, let, me, let me just summarize that Saul is jealous. He's fearful. He starts setting up David uh, to get killed. And instead of trying to do it himself, he's putting David in precarious places uh, through the army and battles and different challenges that doesn't lead to David's death, but it leads to victory after victory after victory. He even marries off his daughter Michael to David with the intent that as David would go out to uh, get the dowry to be a part of his household to pay into Saul that David would get killed, but instead David is successful. So now he's married to Saul's daughter. Jonathan, as we learned uh, last week, has a different relationship with David. He's very faithful and has recognized that David is going to be king. And he, in his uh, friendship and commitment to David, helped David escape Saul. And, and they perform this series of tests and different things. And David escapes, which does not make Saul happy. And all of that leads to a cat and mouse game around the country, and different places. Uh, And through it all, through all these back and forths, what we find is David continues to be found faithful to God and to Saul. Even though Saul isn't faithful necessarily to either. And as he does that, though, what we find also is that David develops and forges a small army of men that are faithful to him. He develops alliances with other places and cities and clans and people and, and that will play into later. He wins battles. And he, even at two different points, David has the opportunity and is prompted by his military leaders, you can take out Saul really easily right now. It, God has set you up. And David said, it is not my place. I am Saul's servant. I am God's servant. And he does not. And he proves his faithfulness to Saul in those moments. And it's it's an incredibly intriguing story that I really wish uh, there was a great representation because the drama in this blows away anything else on TV. I mean, it's amazing. The 
all that's going on and the wines and you know the the ever winding story is is amazing eventually though Saul and Jonathan are killed uh, during battle with the Philistines they're in the back but they get killed uh, one first chronicles kind of has it more of a suicide um, but David is at that same time made king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, becomes king of the northern kingdom, Israel. He's there for two years before there is a coup that murders him, and, and they go to hand David the kingdom, and David's not a part of that, but as a result, he becomes king of now a united kingdom of God's people. And so he conquers the city of Jebu, which is a neutral territory, and sets up the city of David as we, or as we know it, Jerusalem. His new capital city. Now, before we go into that, and that's right at, we're, we're right in the beginning of 2 Samuel. We need to actually go back. So imagine the of a, of a cut scene and going back in time to actually before we're even introduced into Samuel. Or barely introduced into Samuel. We haven't even been introduced to Saul. We definitely haven't been introduced to David at this point. Um, Israel has no king at this point. And in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are in battle against it. You guessed the Philistines. They've just lost a thousand men in battle. And they're going, what happened? Why did we lose? And they go, oh wait, we need our good luck charm. And they send off two priests and they come back with the Ark of the Covenant into the camp and there's great rejoicing and lots of noise and the Philistines are going what is that noise they just lost a battle why are they celebrating and they 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 hear word the ark of the covenant is in the Israelite camp and they go oh no we know the story of the ark we know what this does that's how they defeated the Egyptians and this is how they've done this and this and and they get fearful but they decide, we're going to go into battle anyway. And so they go into battle, and what happens is those two, Eli, uh, the prophet's two sons are killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured, and they take it to their city of Ashdod. This does not go well for this city. They put it in the temple of, of one of their gods, and it ends up beheaded and bowing to the Ark. And so after a while of, of replacing it and this and that, they figure out this is not good, so they ship it off to their next city where the people say, we don't want it. We've heard the stories. And we know what's kind of gone on, so we don't want it. They talked among their wise men and their priests and trying to figure out what to do with it. And so they take two oxen and they put it on this cart, and they send it back to Israel, said, you can have it. In fact, we want to give an offering of gold, all this gold that represents us to your God with the ark, and they send it off. 
it ends up in Beth Shemeth, where their people celebrate, they're excited, they have the ark back. They have this presence of God back. And what do they do? Well, they obviously didn't read the instructions, and the men open the, and look inside to see what's there, and they die. They get fearful, and they ship it off to another city, Kirith Jerem, where it remains there for 20 years in the house of Abner, under the watchful eye of one of his sons. So, now that you're all caught up, you've all got that memorized, right? 20 plus years have happened since David uh, is now king of United king, both kingdoms. Uh, Samuel's dead, Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, Ishbosheth is dead, and David sits on his throne in this beautiful new capital city. And we go into chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathers together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Let me just say, he is planning to throw a party. He gets 30,000 people. And he's going to honor the ark and by implication honor God by bringing it to his new capital city. So he, it says in verse 2, David arose, went with all the people who were with him to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Now, this is more than the Indiana Jones ark that we, we always think about. This ark is, is made according to the instructions of God, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, we need to understand, the ark itself is not God, and God is not in Side the ark. God cannot be contained within a box. But the cherubim symbolize the spiritual power, the very throne that connects to heaven and God with his people. God is transcendent. He's powerful. He's holy. He is above all. And yet the ark is this understanding that God chooses to be present among his people. And that's why David realizes, I've got to get this ark that has been kind of set aside for, for most, if not all, of Saul's kingship. His kingdom, it's kind of set it aside. And so David, pull, he, he's got to get it in there. And, and so he, he decides, I'm going to take it. We're going to travel this nine miles into the new capital city. And they take these 30 men. And it, it takes about a day to get these people down there. And they go, and they're ready. And they're ready to start celebrating. And they, it says in verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of, of Abinabab. And they were guarded which was on the hill, and Yuza and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. So in the midst of the party, we, we don't miss what David is doing. He's using the same technique, the same kind of transport that the Philistines did. He's got a new cart, though. 
The party's going on, and he sets the ark on it, and the guys who had been keeping the ark for the last 20 years plus are, are ready to guide it, which, which sounds like a pretty good plan. Except God never designed the ark to be carried on a cart. That wasn't how it was to be moved. The ark had poles attached because it was to be carried on the backs of a priest from a certain clan within the Levite tribe. It's not just a ceremonial, you know, good luck charm. God chose to be present within His people through it. And the thing about God is He is holy. He is perfect. He's right to be angry with sin found within His creation. And in fact, the whole ark and its priestly system was an understanding of sin needed to be dealt with. And we can't come into God's presence just meandering in there. It's dangerous for humans to get close to God's holiness. In fact, he sets up a lot of different protections for them throughout the whole period of it. So for who anyone who knows God's law, though, David's actions here are a bit iffy. They're, they're almost scandalous in some ways. Yes, he had good intentions. But he isn't following The regulations. And it helps to explain what happens next. David and everybody are celebrating. They're partying. They're enjoying the festivities. And in the midst of all the party, the celebration, they've decided they're going to carry the ark. And they're going to bring it in David's shiny new city. There's music, there's dancing, there's singing. But verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, David gets upset. His idea is, wait a minute, God, I'm taking care of the things that need to be taken care of. I'm bringing it in the city. And it's often our first reaction, too, when things go wrong. We get angry. And David's angry that he killed Uzziah. I mean, after all, wasn't God on their side? He'd been with them all this time. There's this expectation. And in verse 9, David's anger now turns to fear. How can the ark of God ever come to me? I mean, this was supposed to be an immense celebration. It was supposed to be a party, God. And you threw water on my party. I mean, he's God's anointed king. He's bringing the people together as they were intended. And God's ark triumphantly was supposed to be in the city. Instead, it's a disaster. And in his mind, Uzziah has died as a direct result of his failure. 
and his duty as king. And this fills David with fear because he's getting to better understand God is truly awesome. Which I realize we use that word a lot. I mean, we, we need to reclaim its meaning. It's not like, God's awesome, dude. Or as Lego movie, everything is awesome. Now that'll be stuck in your head. You're welcome. Awesome. It means extremely impressive, daunting, inspiring awe. This is what God is like. He's not just awesome as in pretty cool. God is awesome as in powerful, holy, dangerous. David has experienced this amazing protection. He's, he's experienced the supreme and special intimacy with God over the years. And now he's overstepped himself. He's gone too far. He's presumed on his relationship with God. He's failed to follow the regulations that were designed to protect themselves from the awesome holiness of God that are enthroned between the cherubim. And for us this morning, I want to say it's a reminder that we should never let our privilege, not our right, our privilege as a Christian to, to ever become presumption. Our relationship with God is close, but it should never be casual. Our relationship with God is close. It should never be casual. So David doesn't quite get it yet of why, you know, and what to do. So he decides, you know what, we're just going to set it here in, in Odom, Edom's house and we're, I mean, we're just going to leave it here. And in verse 11 it says, And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So this blessing remains in this guy's house for three months. David finally hears, hears about it and realizes, I can't just leave it there. I need to finish the task. And so, he prepares his heart. And he decides to try again. But this time he does it with the right attitude. So in humility, with respect and reverence for the awesome power of God, he gathers his people. Last time David had been too casual in dealing with God's holiness and he didn't listen to the instructions. He didn't go through it. This time, there are no carts involved. He, he follows them carefully. He, he gets the priests and he, they carry them with the poles and the, and the proper worship and, and sacrifice is happening. In fact, the, King David, he, he lays apart his, his kingly garments and, and he starts wearing the priestly ephod. And he leads them in sacrifice. They take six steps and perform a sacrifice. 
And we don't know how often this happens, but at the very end, they do make it the, nine, the remaining distance of that nine miles, and, and they place the ark where it was intended in this tent, and, and, and they, they prepare the sacrifices, and they have this massive sacrifice that as a result from certain portions of that sacrifice, he blesses all the people, and they, he sends part of these sacrifices home. So that the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, would be able to participate in the blessing. But there's another character in this story. Saul's daughter, David's wife, Michael. She had been kind of, after David had been chased off, she'd been married off to another man. Now she's been brought back into David's house. She's looking through the window sees all the pomp and circumstance. And she, David's coming home to bring the blessing upon his own household. And she meets him. Verse 20, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Can you just hear her voice? I mean, she's got a tone. There, there, there's, there's something going on here. She's... She's got this attitude, this tone, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. How dare you? Don't you know who you are? I added that part. Just in case you're looking. Michael doesn't care about what has just gone on. Michael doesn't care about the sacrifices and God's holiness. Instead, like her father, she cares about what people think. She cares about what David has done and what David looks like in front of others. She fell in love with David the warrior. David, who went out and was victorious over the enemies, the one who would give her prestige and respect as the king's wife. But this new humble David, it really doesn't seem like she's too interested. Now, she's not the only wife, I will state. It states that at this point, you know, he's actually married more than likely to one of Saul's wives, among other ladies. That, that have been put into and brought extra political gain to him. But she's not interested at this point in him at all. And if you're wondering about a response, think about this. Have you ever thought about how much time we spend trying to keep up appearances? I mean, to look strong to others at work, at home, at, among our friends, our family... In, in one way, we can figure out what we really care about in life is we look at what makes us angry. Here's a woman who gets angry at her husband for what he does in front of everybody else. And it seems like that's really what she cares about. There's no consideration about God and His holiness in the midst of this. Verse 21, but David shows what he carries about. He says to her, it was before the Lord 
who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. The important question for all of us this morning is, what are we looking for in a king? What are we looking for in God's king? We find in the next chapter that King David's biggest claim to fame isn't military battles, isn't unity in, in, in of the southern and northern kingdoms. His biggest claim to fame is that he is the direct forerunner to Jesus. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. That his kingship will last into eternity because of Jesus. The most what I mean, what do you want Jesus to be for you this morning? You want him to be the powerful one, the mighty warrior who gives you what you want, gives you the prestige and honor in the eyes of others. But what about the humble king? The king that was humiliated in front of others. I mean, Jesus is the king who makes the ultimate sacrifice of his own life. He was humiliated, mocked, naked, despised, but yet he saves us through that sacrifice. And he, and he calls us to join in living that way. To be humble, to carry our cross daily, to serve others. That is how we properly worship God. Not by animal sacrifice and dancing and singing and spinning around. It's not even about priestly regulations you know, before the ark. Those were temporary rules. But our worship is about acknowledging our deep sinfulness in light of who God and His awesome holiness is. And we throw us ourselves at God's mercy daily and we live our lives that put Him in, in first place. And we love others as a result. Michael doesn't have a regard for God's holiness. And so she despises David's humility. David, on the other hand, has learned that his humility is the prerequisite before a holy God. Hebrews 12 tells us what our relationship with God is like. Because of Jesus, it's not a matter of fear. We know God truly as Father. And we come before Him fully knowing that God loves us and has redeemed us. Because of Jesus' full and perfect and sufficient act, we are completely forgiven when we put our faith in Him. We're not simply sinners before a angry God. And we can have great confidence. And yet, there is a need for reverence and awe before a holy God. 
Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's not that God can't or won't judge. It's that because of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we know that He's coming back to take us into Himself. It, it, everything is in God's hands. But we must never forget that the Father who loves us is also the holy and awesome God. So our response, our worship, needs to be acceptably come to Him with humility, reverence, and awe. And that isn't just about Sundays. It's not just how we dress and different things. It's, it's, it's all about how we live our lives in response to what God has done for us. And it's, it's about living peacefully in holy lives and about watching our anger in our tongues and, and doing the things that we need to do when we run away from bitterness, we run away from envy, we run away from fear because it's all about God's Holiness affecting every part of our lives and attitudes. What is right before God? Living humbly, rightly before Him, in service and in love. That we bow our lives to Him. That He picks them back up, sets them in place and we say thank you God thank you I can't give you thankfulness enough thank you and out of that we live we live and we'll get undignified for the glory of God no presumption other than the fact that God is holy and calls us all to be Heavenly Father, mighty God, you are the one, the only, we live to serve you this morning, this day, this week, this month, and forevermore. If our hearts are not right, Lord, if we're just as a part of doing this because this is what we've always done, check us. If we're into the things just because it's the cool, check us. Your awesomeness, Lord. It's mighty. It's holy. Help us, God, today as we approach You, may we not take advantage or assume anything other than Your love. 
And in Your holiness, may we live out our call to come before You with reverent awe and to live out our lives in thankfulness for what You've done for each and every one of us today. May we humbly come before You as God. A holy and righteous God that deserves our respect. In your name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.